Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. We come this morning to the church of Smyrna, number two, in a list of seven. And uh, it's interesting that out of the seven churches, only uh, two of them receive just positive commendation. The other five, Jesus has some problem with them. And uh, they uh, stand out as needing correction. Whereas Smyrna and Philadelphia are both congregations that uh, Jesus has nothing negative to say. Uh, He lifts them up. He uh, values them and he points out uh, their significance and how well they have done. This is particularly uh, noteworthy because Smyrna and Philadelphia were among the smallest and least uh, prosperous congregations and cities. Uh, these churches were not what you would consider wealthy. Uh, in fact, uh, they, they were poor in uh, many material respects. And Jesus uh, looks at them and says, you have done very well. Whereas the one church out of the seven that is the wealthiest and most prosperous and most accomplished uh, congregation from from an outward standpoint, Laodicea, is the church that Jesus has nothing good to say about. Um, It reminds me again that God does not view things the way we view them. He doesn't see the way we see. Uh, we tend to look at, at uh, uh, glamour and, and uh, modernity in our facilities and structures and lushness and lavishness, and we tend to say, uh, wow, that, that is a great uh, church. Uh, look at that sound system. Look at that decor. Uh, look at their accoutrements and, and equipment. Look at that marvelous structure for the glory of God. And for the Laodiceans who have met all of those criteria, Jesus said, there's just nothing I can say good about you. Uh, Your outside looks great, but your inside is empty. And you're blind and poor and naked, and you don't even know it. Uh, And you need to have an abrupt transformation. But here's Smyrna, a small congregation in a smaller town that has suffered immensely as a consequence of persecution. And Jesus commends them because they have been faithful and consistent and have pursued Him without uh, turning back. He says, I know your tribulation. There's an interesting history to Smyrna that kind of parallels the church and Uh, Perhaps there's a play on that in Jesus' letter. The town of Smyrna uh, was uh, started about five or six hundred years before Christ. And initially it grew very, uh, very prosperously. It developed well. It became a a sizable city and uh, significant in the region. And then... um, For some reason, about uh, 500 years or so before Christ, the town began to die. It began to just uh, wither away. 
I don't know if you have uh, ever lived in a place like that or had opportunity to observe it. I was mentioning Wednesday night a friend of mine who pastored in a town in, in Iowa that uh, had been a very uh, prosperous farming community and also had some industry uh, back in the uh, 1930s and 40s. And in that day, the town was over 40,000 people. Uh, 39,000 was the official population, but it was growing and expanding. And yet when he went there to pastor in the late 1980s, early 90s, that town had dwindled to 13,000 people. And out of those people, uh, most of them, the uh, median age was rising, which means that the young people were graduating high school, going off to college, and not coming back. And so as time went along, that town began to decline. Typically, when a town hits that cycle, it really never recovers. Eventually, over time, it does, in fact, die out. And uh, it just becomes a ghost town of sorts. Um, I won't mention the city in, in Illinois, since this is on the Internet. They might take exception. But I remember going to a district conference in the southern part of the state, a number of years ago to a town that had one time also been very prosperous and, and very key. And uh, a certain uh, big box store had moved into the area and uh, promised jobs and wealth and prosperity. But in effect, what had happened was uh, all of the mom and pop businesses in the downtown area and, and surrounding had closed up. And as a consequence, you would walk down the sidewalk of this town and uh, every, uh, you know, two out of three buildings were uh, storefronts were boarded up and the businesses were closed. And um, the big box store on the outskirts of town seemed to be doing well, but the town itself was dying. And uh, it was only a matter of time before the whole population began to, to migrate in another direction. Typically, there is no recovery for towns like that. And that was the expectation of Smyrna. There would be no recovery. It was on the decline. And uh, we think in terms of decades, but, uh, you know, our history is, as the United States is not that old. Uh, but they thought in terms of centuries and a couple of hundred years past, and then all of a sudden, Smyrna was reborn. It began to thrive again. It began to, to grow again. And uh, a couple of hundred years before this church was started, Smyrna became uh, once again uh, a town and a community that, that had some uh, map value. Uh, even though it wasn't the largest of these seven towns and churches, it, it was growing back again in significance. And that kind of sets the backdrop for resurrection and revival. Because uh, the church at Smyrna was born as sort of a daughter church out from Ephesus. And it experienced great uh, initial growth and, and became uh, a thriving congregation. But it wasn't long before persecution and tribulation began to settle in. And as a consequence of that, 
the church at Smyrna began to suffer immensely. And they uh, became poverty-stricken because their commerce as Christians, their, their jobs, their businesses, uh, their Christian economy had been dramatically impacted by the resistance and hatred and animosity of the surrounding community, and particularly of the Jews. And so this church began to suffer, and it looked like it was under uh, a fire that would destroy it. And Jesus comes to them with a message that He knows what's going on, and that He still holds this church in the palm of His hand. He says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, verse 9, but you are really rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They are a synagogue of Satan. That's a powerful term. Synagogue of Satan. The apostasy of the Jewish people as we move toward the end of the first century, became more and more pronounced. You know how Jesus said as he wept over Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would have nothing to do with me. And he lamented the fact that his own people had rejected him, even though it was prophetically known to to be uh, the case that was going to occur. But then as the church was born and as it began to thrive and Jews were converted and began to leave the synagogue, not because they wanted to, but because they were ostracized by uh, the, the Jewish community and they began to be driven out and driven away. And so they began to gather in house churches and, and these congregations uh, began <coughs> to spring up separate from the synagogue. And the Jews resented the fact, first of all, that they were troublemakers among them, uh, because the Romans initially associated them with a sect of Judaism, and and, uh, there was some animosity developing there. But also, um, the Jews themselves uh, realized their their synagogues were declining. Um, They were losing uh, significance and importance. And... A strange thing happened. Sometimes a common enemy makes for odd bedfellows. And the Jews joined with Rome in persecuting the believers. They did so on several fronts. They refused to shop with them. They refused to do business with them. And they incited slander among the population so that as time went along, Christian businesses began to fail. Now, this is not uh, in this letter, but it is in extra-biblical literature and, and in other sources that this was kind of the trend, is that the Christian community began to suffer economically because of the rejection and the slander and the accusations of the people. 
Every business had its uh, dedication to some god or goddess. And the Christians didn't have any such thing because of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And so they were accused of being atheists. As time went along, we learned that they were actually accused of being cannibals because they took communion, the bread and the wine, which they remembered as the Lord's body and blood, and and they were accused of being cannibals, that at their feast they ate human flesh and drank human blood. It it just got to be uh, all kinds of things said about them so that eventually uh, the, the community rejected them. But the Jews went a step further. And this takes us into the second century a little bit, but it shows you the mindset. You know, one of the things when God instituted the Sabbath through Moses uh, in the wilderness, do you remember one specific thing that he said not to do? I mean, there were a number of things, but there was one specific thing he said not to do. Don't gather firewood on the Sabbath. You know, have enough on Friday to last you through the next day. Don't gather firewood. When Polycarp was martyred and burned, the Jews on the Sabbath, the Jews gathered wood for the fire. They had become so uh, connected to Roman persecution that they were willing to violate their revered Sabbath laws in order to vent their hatred for Christians. Jesus said, I know what you're like. (laughs) You are the synagogue of Satan. In fact, the Scripture indicates to us that any time a people in opposition to God become aligned with the purposes of the devil, they become satanic in their focus and their motivation. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8.42, You are of your father the devil, because he is a liar from the beginning, and you are liars. You're of your father, the devil. To his own beloved disciple, Peter, when Peter sought to subvert his intention to go to the cross, which was the only way redemption could be effected, Peter said, I am not letting this happen to you. And that was the intent and purpose of the devil. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are not pursuing the mind of God. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, you remember when Saul was told to annihilate a certain group of people and and everything that had to do with them. And Saul decided that it would be good to kind of spare the king and save the livestock. Why why put the livestock to death? What, What good could, problems could they cause? But it was an act of disobedience. And Samuel confronted him. And, and this dramatic moment 
when Samuel says, Saul, you have disobeyed the Lord. And Saul said, no, I haven't. I did everything I was asked to do. And Samuel says, so what is this bleating of sheep I hear in my ear? And then he says these words to Saul. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as idolatry. The sin of witchcraft is alignment with Satan for the purpose of accomplishing your own ends. And idolatry is putting anything ahead of God. And so stubbornness and rebellion is alignment with Satan, who is a rebel and an idolater from the beginning. We need to take a lesson from that and make sure that we're always on the right side of the fence. Because the Jews had overstepped the boundary. And Jesus referred to them as the synagogue of Satan. And then he comes back to Smyrna and he says, But I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know you've suffered. I know the Jews have blasphemed and have slandered you. And in a sense, my dear Smyrnans, I don't have really good news for you initially. It's going to get worse. Tough times are going to come. Satan, working through people, is going to put some of you in prison for ten days. We could debate forever whether that's symbolic or literal, and I'm not going to go there. The point is, it's not a long time, but it's an intense time. And Jesus is saying, some of you are going to suffer. Some of you are going to be imprisoned. And the concept there is, some of you are going to be imprisoned awaiting execution as insurrectionist against the Roman Empire. You're going to suffer the ultimate cost. But, and these words, if you think about it, are startling. Just put yourself in their position. Some of them have lost everything. They're barely surviving. They have very little to eat. They're just hanging in there. And then... He says, some of you are going to die. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be persecuted. And some of you are going to die because you're followers of me. But I want you to know, to him who overcomes, I will give the crown of life. You will never be hurt by the second death. You've heard me say this before, and I remind us again this morning. I've often been asked through the years, when are you going to preach on Revelation? When are you going to talk about the end times? And to myself, I've always said, I'm not going to do that until I feel the Lord has told me the time is right. I don't know where we're going as a nation and as a world. I don't know what's coming. It doesn't look good, I can tell you that. And 
I don't know what price we're going to have to pay for our faith. Some of us here may simply suffer ostracism and slander. Down the road, some may suffer imprisonment uh, unjustly. And finally, um, some at some point may suffer death, whether here or abroad. We don't know the cost, but here, here's what I can tell you. you. You may worry today, will I be able to stand the test of my faith? And you think, I'm not that strong. And I want to encourage you by saying, you don't have to be that strong today. All you have to do is keep your eyes on Jesus Christ today. And do what he leads you to do today. People say, how, how will I know if I'm going to be where God wants me to be in ten years? By doing what he shows you to do today. And then when tomorrow comes, do that all over again. And as you walk step by step, if that time comes in our life, we will be there when we need to be. And God will give the grace that we need in the moment. But to the overcomers, we will never be hurt by the second death. Jesus said, he that lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? We will never die. You can kill the body, but you can't kill me. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever in his presence. And you can only kill me once. That's all that you can do. Just once. It's the only chance you get. (laughs) And I will enjoy the crown of life. In his presence eternally. That was his message to the Smyrna church. Hang in there. Keep your eyes on me. Stick to the faith. I'm proud of you. I understand what you're facing. I love you. And and you will win. And in the end... You will enjoy the crown of life in my presence. Have you purposed in your heart to follow Jesus no matter the cost? Right now, we have it easy. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world don't. One of the things this message did for me was make me think more about the persecuted church. Man, I I just live in luxury. And I have hardly any real worries. I'm not afraid anybody's going to take my life for my faith or put me in jail. or I'm not living in poverty. But I have thousands of brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering immensely. I need to be praying for them. They need to be on my mind. One day I may be with them. And in that day, I want to know there are hundreds of people praying for me. I want to know that. So that's important. And it's important to know that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we will finish well 
and receive the crown and be blessed in his presence eternally. Isn't that good news? The rest of the folks, second death, it's going to be tough and it's going to be lonesome. But for us, no second death, crown of life with our Lord Jesus and our loved ones.